0: Well, good morning again. My name is Marshall. Let me pray uh, for us before we look at the passage that Catherine uh, just read for us. Our great God, we come to uh, this passage that is familiar to us. If we've been around church for any length of time, we've seen children waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna. And I pray, Lord, though, that you would take this often familiar passage and that we would hear it with new ears. We would see it with new eyes. And we would live new lives because we have encountered it. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday during Lent. Lent is the season, the 40 days that lead up to Easter. Easter. In this season, this season of Lent, we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, but actually, it'd be more proper to say we're finishing a sermon series. It's way back January of 2019, which seems like a lifetime ago. I began preaching in the Gospel of Matthew, and we did like two or three month stretches here and there, uh, stop and start. And uh, we're coming now to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been back and forth to Matthew two or three times, three or four times, I believe. So in the next six weeks, we'll be looking at Matthew 21 through Matthew 28. And these represent the eight days of Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday, which we will look at today, uh, then uh, all the way through Monday, Thursday, the Lord's Supper, the crucifixion on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday, eight days, and we're going to spend the six weeks. Now, we're going to do this, we're going we're to kind of slow down and do this because the Bible itself actually prioritizes these eight days. All four of the Gospels, there's four Gospels in the Christian New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four Gospels, they kind of sprint through Jesus' ministry, and then when they get to this week, they slow down. Let's consider the book of Matthew just real quickly. If you were to flip through the book of Matthew, and I would encourage you to do so this afternoon, the first two chapters of Matthew uh, concern his birth. Then there's 18 chapters that are devoted to his public ministry, his three years of public ministry. But then there's eight chapters devoted to these eight days. And that's appropriate because what happens in these eight days that we will look at during Lent this year changes the course of human history. Now, the rest of the days of Jesus' life, they're all important. I actually got out my calculator. If Jesus lived to be 33 years old, he lived roughly 12,000 days. And then during those 12,000 days, he did some important stuff. He did some, He taught, he did miracles, he trained disciples. But all of those other days, without these eight days, we're not sitting here. Without these eight days, there is no Christianity, there is no church, and Jesus is a mere historical figure forgotten in the sands of time to most people. Because what Jesus did and more specifically what he said and more specifically what he did during these eight days of Holy Week changed the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, these eight days changed your life. They can continue to change your life, and they can change anyone's life. Eight days that changed the world. So the series title is Eight Days That Changed the World. The sermon title is The Return of the King. Because Jesus knows how important these days are going to be, these eight days. So on the first day, which we look at today, as he approaches Jerusalem, the holy city, he is very deliberate about how he presents himself. He's very deliberate about how... He he wants to make crystal clear who he is, what he has come to do. He wants to leave no doubt what he stands for. If you look at the Gospels, what happens is that Jesus starts with these big crowds, but then towards the middle of the Gospels, he kind of pulls back a little bit, and now he's inserting himself into this massive crowd in Jerusalem at Passover, and he wants to be crystal clear who he is. He wants the people to know. And like any good leader, he does not just speak He acts so that people know what he stands for. And in his case, he rides on a donkey. He accepts the praise of people. He clears the temple, and he heals people, okay? Now, I think it's important to note that, you know, oftentimes we think of Jesus meek and mild. But as he told his disciples, he told them to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Well, Jesus is shrewd. I mean, he's kind of like... He's like a producer of like a rock show or something he knows the importance of spectacle he knows the importance of the operatic effects and he orchestrates this whole event to present himself and what he's presenting himself as this day on the first day of the eight but all of them is the king the king of jerusalem the king of the temple the king of the world and so what i want to see this morning are three things the announcement of the king the justice of the king and then the mercy of the king. First, the announcement of the king. Now, verse 1, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. I have not been to the Holy Land. I hope to go someday. Uh, But he is looking across. He's standing on a mountain, and there's a valley between him and the Holy City. It's called the Kidron Valley. And he's looking across to the Holy City of Jerusalem. It's Passover week. Now, my favorite American holiday, especially on the North Shore, is Independence Day, the 4th of July. I love Independence Day. Uh, We sell it. It's just fun, right? And this is Jewish Independence Day. That's what Passover is. This is the day of Jewish independence. And so people have come in, and there's great joy, and there's great sounds, and there's great smells. Everybody is together. The city is jammed. There's a buzz about the people. One thing I noticed interestingly, I'd never really thought about this before, but as I read this passage, when you preach, you read a passage over and over and over again, there's a lot of noise in this passage. There's a very loud vo- uh, verse 9 people are shouting. Verse 12, Jesus is flipping over tables. You can hear in your mind's eye the the, the change hitting the floor of the temple. You can imagine the anger, the yelling when he's doing this. Verse 15, the children are crying out. They're singing. And then verse 10, it says the city was stirred up. The Greek word there is actually the same word we get seismograph from. The city was literally quaking. This is a very loud passage. A lot is going on. So, and Jesus is on this Mount of Olives, he's looking into the city, he's looking across, verses 2 and 3, and he sends two disciples ahead to, fa- to fetch a donkey and a colt, which he then rides into the city, which is a fulfillment of the prophecies. I'll read again, verses 4 and 5. This riding on a donkey, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Now those verses there in chapter 5 are actually a quotation from the Jewish scriptures from Isaiah chapter 62 and Zechariah chapter 9. It's a fulfillment of the scriptures. But it's not just a fulfillment. There is also a royal precedent for this. Because in the time of David, King David, which had been 900 years before this story, 900 years before the story, there had been confusion about which son of David would succeed him. Which son of David would succeed David? And David wants to make very clear that it's to be Solomon, his son, who's going to succeed him. And how does he establish that? What does he do? He puts his son on a donkey, Solomon, and has him ride into the city. That's 1 Kings chapter 1. Which is all to say that the royal donkey, I mean, Jesus walked all of his life. He's always, he walked along, he's not tired, okay? This is theatrics, okay? The royal donkey was the Air Force One of its day, okay? To ride a donkey was to say, I'm the king. I am the king entering my holy city. Now, it's significant that he rides a donkey and not a horse. might seem a little bit underwhelming. Uh, 300 years before, when Alexander the Great had passed into Jerusalem, he actually rode a stallion. He came to conquer But when you ride a donkey, it's a a symbol of peace, of victory, of confidence. He's actually saying, The victory is won. I am the conqueror. I don't need to peacock myself on a stallion. I have won the victory. Riding a donkey, there's a humble confidence. It's like Jesus saying, I got this. I am the king. I got this. I'm on a donkey. Now, the people respond to this self-presentation of him being the king. Verse 8, they lay their cloaks on the road as well as palm branches from trees. This is the way the Israelite kings and conquerors had been greeted in days gone by. And in verse 9, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. Save us now. They're actually quoting Psalm 118. Which is a commemoration of a great military victory. This entry into the holy city on this donkey, upon the cloaks of these people, this is a victory parade. This is the beginning, this is the beginning of a coronation service. The king has entered the city, he has come into his city. The king is here. But Jesus is not done presenting himself. Matthew presents that he rides. It's interesting to me, in the Gospel of Matthew, it appears that Jesus rides the donkey all the way up to the temple. Uh, He rides it all the way up to the temple, then he gets off. He dismounts there. I love the image of Jesus getting dropped off at the temple by a donkey. Okay, I mean, there's like a sense of irony in this. Like, imagine like a, a, an ironic rapper. Imagine like Kendrick Lamar, okay? And, he, uh, you know, showing up at the Grammys in a 1976 Dodge Dart, and, you know, tossing the keys to the valet. You know, he's not coming the, he's coming the Dodge Dart, okay? Jesus goes straight to the temple on a donkey. And the reason he goes to the temple, because the temple is central. This is the first order of business. He goes straight to the temple, which brings us to the second point. The justice of the king. The justice of the king. Now remember, this is Passover week. The great Jewish festival, which required you to bring animals for sacrifice. But people have traveled great distances to be in Jerusalem. So as a welcome convenience, there were these money changers who set up in the temple courts who basically said, you don't have to travel with your animals, with your lamb. Just bring your money. When you get here, you can pay us some money and we will give you an animal. It's a welcome convenience, Apparently. But Jesus, he got a problem with this. He said, he's upset. Verse 12, look with me. I'll read it again. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus is acting like he owns the place, right? I mean, he goes into a... I mean, how many times have you seen this in your life? I can't think of one. Somebody goes into a public space and starts flipping the furniture, right? You know, the, and in the Gospel of John, it says he has a, cord, a cord of, uh, whip, that he's basically driving people out with a whip. This is violent. He is the king, and the good king always cares about injustice. And make no mistake, I want you to notice this, because I think especially in our kind of Western culture... We we suppress this, but he is angry. You know, oftentimes we think of anger as a destructive force that needs to be suppressed, and sometimes it does. But make no mistake, anger can be and is often very, very good. Because anger expresses something about who you are, expresses something that you want to be known about yourself. Anger exposes the things that we value, the thing we get angry about the things that we care about, what is important. And anger also shows our deepest desires and our wants. And then also this, righteous anger, it creates movement for change. Anger moves people. Consider God's servant Moses. He was angry that the people were in bondage. And it moved him to lead the people out of their bondage into freedom. The exodus. Consider the anger of Martin Luther King Jr. He was angry about the plight of African Americans in our country, and he did something about it. Consider the anger of President Zelensky of Ukraine. It's anger that's motivating. I would offer on the other side, of the, Vladimir Putin's not angry, he's fearful. Zelensky, he's angry and he wants to do something. And Jesus is angry because there is injustice in his kingdom and he wants to see it stamped out. Well, what is it? What is the injustice? There's a couple of things here. First, there's an economic abuse. Jesus is disgusted by the mingling of business and worship. The people are profiting on pilgrims who have come to worship, to pray, to experience God. And because, hear this, friends, because the agenda of our king is also the agenda of his people, which is to say us, his agenda is our agenda, as Christians we have a duty to protect those in highly competitive economic situations who cannot protect themselves, like these pilgrims could not protect themselves at the Passover. So whether it's people in the service industry... Domestic workers, modern forms of slavery, immigrants, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Central America. We have an obligation to protect these people and their economic interests. One reason our church and our missions committee particularly love supporting the work of World Relief. World Relief is an organization committed to helping refugees resettle in our cities. It's a very tangible way that you can get involved, World Relief. But Jesus is angry about something else, an injustice as well. And that is the people are being prevented from worshiping. All this activity is happening is what is called the court of the Gentiles. Basically, the temple is a series of concentric circles. I'll talk about this more in a moment. But the outermost circle is called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where this trading, this bartering is happening. Okay, the outer section. And this commerce is actually preventing the Gentiles, the non-Jews, from worshiping. And in the prophetic imagination, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, for all people, for all nations. And this money changing is preventing it, making it a den of thieves. You see, the temple is to invite the nations to worship, to experience the presence of the living God. And instead, they're using it to fund their business. Now, one important aside real quickly. As a church, and we say this every week in our worship service because we need to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it. Our mission statement as a church, and I feel like this is rooted in Scripture. If I had more time, I would show you. Our mission statement as a church is to welcome our neighbors to grow together in Christ and serve God in our community and world. Welcome, grow, and serve. And we say it every week for several reasons. One, it's our mission, but two, welcoming particularly is hard. Welcoming is hard, especially, frankly, on the North Shore where too often our smiling faces and fancy clothes cover over sad hearts. One reason we say this so much is because we have to work hard week after week in renewing our efforts to welcome people that we don't know, that we've never seen. Our hope is that our church can be a place where every person in this community and beyond can bring their love and their grief can bring their desires and their brokenness, can bring their joys and their sorrows. We want to be a place where all people are welcome. So what do we need to do? What do you need to do to make space to welcome other people? I mean, I think it's so, on the North Shore, we, we have these smiley faces and people who fail or they have something going on, whether it's an addiction or a broken relationship or a bankruptcy or a shame in business. And we kind of, we don't know what to do. Watch well, what Christians do. They move towards them, they welcome and they embrace. Can we be a church that continues to grow in our welcome? But above all, Jesus, friends, is angry. He's angry because what does he want? It's the whole story of scripture. He wants you and me and these people in the temple to experience the presence, the love of God. Jesus is flipping tables and turning over the furniture because he wants to open the temple open it wide for people to have an experience prayer worship of the living God and the proof of that is not just that he's the king of justice and of anger he is also the king of mercy, the third point because I think amid the drama of the triumphal entry and the violence of the temple cleansing verse 14 is almost lost. Look with me, verse 14 it's actually like it's almost in the heart of the passage, in the heart of the temple It says this, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. In many ways, this is the key to the whole passage, the whole life of Jesus, the whole story of the scripture. Why has Jesus come? Why has God redeemed us? To save and to heal, to make whole, to make us right with God, to make us right with ourselves and with one another. In the strictest sects of Judaism, the blind and the lame were prohibited from the temple. They were prevented from the priesthood. They couldn't even come into the temple. And so when Jesus restores them, this is not just a medical healing. This is a communal healing. This is a spiritual healing because he's allowing them to be back in worship. He's restoring them to community and to the worship of the living God. He wants people to know him. And that's why I love verse 15, this picture of the children. All the while this is happening, there's children in the temple. And they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. It's like a Greek chorus in the background. Jesus is doing all this stuff over here, and there's this children's choir. This is the biblical defense for children's choirs. There's a children's choir over here. There's a children's choir singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Because he's doing this, he is opening wide the gate of salvation. He's opening wide. This whole scene is a preview of coming attractions and the great Christian hope. A preview of the day when Jesus will save to the uttermost. When he will heal when he will restore justice, enthrone mercy, forgive sins, when he'll banish sickness and, yes, even death. And in the meantime, as we live with that hope, he comes to rebuild crumbling marriages, to restore alienated parents and children, to rebuild teetering finances, to mend our hurting hearts, and to turn our selfishness into service. And all the while, there are children singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. the son of david it is all so beautiful healing redemption people being welcomed and children singing which is what makes verse 15 so troubling (laughs) look with me i'm just going to summarize but i'm quoting when they the religious leaders when they saw the wonderful things they were indignant I mean, what kind of people, what's going on? I mean, I've spent so much of this week trying to figure out why are they indignant at all these beautiful things happening? Are they just mean? Are they jealous of Jesus and his popularity? As i thought about it, I think the best biblical reason, the best textual reason is the temple. It's the very temple. Because if you think about the situation of the religious leaders, they're an occupied country. Think of Ukraine right now. They're an occupied country by a hated foreign army, the Romans. And the one thing, though, that the Romans still allowed them to to control was the temple, the temple. And Jesus is moving their cheese. The heart of this passage is the temple. It's actually in, in the Gospel of Mark In the Gospel of Luke, they make very clear that this action, flipping those tables, clearing the temple, this is the reason that they decided to kill him. This is it. Which is to say that it's Palm Sunday, specifically, that leads to Good Friday. It's the cleansing of the temple, the flipping of the tables. It is that that leads directly to the uh, the crucifixion. It's this moment where they decide to kill him. The temple is so important. The whole of Scripture, all of Scripture is unto God's people dwelling with God. If you go all the way back to the very first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden is actually laid out like a temple. If you look at it closely, it's laid out like a temple where people can experience God. And what do Adam and Eve do in the cool of the day? They walk with God. God is their friend. He is there. He's with them. They're present. But then after sin and brokenness enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, what does God do? He sets up a temple, a tabernacle, so that people can have some experience of the presence of God. But it's limited. Now, I said a, a moment ago that the, the, ter, uh, the temple is basically concentric circles. You have the core of, of the women, the core of the Gentiles, and you have one more. And then the heart of the, the, heart of the temple, the most... The innermost part of the concentric circles is the Holy of Holies, which is where the special presence of God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that, that, the Holy of Holies was only entered one day a year by one person, the high priest, with bloody sacrifices, okay? There's become a great divide between the people and the presence of God. But then Jesus comes to his city, and he comes to open the veil, He comes to open the veil so that people might experience fully the presence of God. You see, this story is not just Jesus overthrowing tables. He's overturning the temple system. He's not just driving out the sacrificial animals. He is making room for himself, the one perfect sacrifice. He is not just healing people. He is restoring worshipers who can experience the presence of God. I said these are eight days that changed the world. And if you notice, I said carefully that this is the beginning of the coronation service. This is actually an eight-day coronation service. An eight-day coronation service. And the moment actually when the crown is placed upon his head, that is the moment when he hung on a cross and he said, it is finished. And what happened at that moment? What happened at that moment was the, to- the-, the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from everyone else was torn in two suggesting that the presence of God is now open. These are eight days that change the world, and they're all about us experiencing forgiveness so that we might know and dwell with the holy God who loves us and wants us to know him, to experience his presence. I mean, the two points of this sermon are real simple. I gave you a three-point outline, but here are the main points. Jesus is the king. He's the king to whom we submit. And... He wants you to experience the presence, the fullness of God. All of his actions are unto that beautiful end. Now, um, as a preacher, I know something about myself and where I'm good and where I'm not. I'm I'm a better introducer of sermons than I am of of concluders. Walter Gass tells me this all the time. Marshall, work on your conclusions. Do you, Walter? You say that, don't you? Yes, you do. He's right. He's right. I got bad news, Walter. I don't have a conclusion this morning. Because there's so much in this passage. It's not just a lot of noise. There's so much passion in this passage. And so what I want to do is I'm not going to conclude this. Sermon. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to pray slowly. And what I want you to do is I want you to find yourself in this story. Are you someone who needs to submit to the king, bow to the king for the first time or the thousandth time? Are you someone who needs to praise God with the children, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David? Maybe you need to be angry at injustice, economic or worship. Maybe you need to find someone in your life that you need to welcome. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need to take healing to someone else. But above all, all of us need to long more and more to have our hearts and imaginations fired to experience what Jesus comes to offer, which is the presence The presence of God himself behind that temple veil. So I'm going to pray. This is my conclusion. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to give you some time to think about where you are in this story. Pray with me. God, this is a passage with, there's so many sounds. There's even so many smells. I think about the animals being sacrificed, the animals in the street. There's so much noise, the crowds in the street... And then there's you, your Lord, your son, at the middle of it. And I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice, whether in this room or online, I pray, Lord, that they would find themselves in this story. God, there's some of us who need to bow our knee, submit to you as the king of the world and the king of our hearts. There's some of us that want to, just to praise, to sing out, Hosanna, at the top of our lungs, Hosanna to the Son of David. God, there's some of us, we know of injustice in our sphere of influence and we're angry and we want to do something about it, whether it's economic or spiritual. God, for all of us, we want to be more and more welcoming to those around us in the church, but also our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. God, some of us need healing and some of us want to pass healing to others. But for all of us, God, we want to experience more of your presence and as we enter this season of Lent, as we move towards Holy Week, as we move to that holy moment of Good Friday and that glorious moment of Resurrection Sunday and Easter, as we move towards it, these eight days that change the world, I pray that we would long more and more for your presence, that you would break our hearts, that you would open our souls, that by your Spirit you would fill us, that we might see and know you, the living and true God. Would you make it so for all of us? For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.